<laughs> well, anyway, it's good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Josh. As Grant said, I'm one of the pastors here and get to continue on in the series that we're going through through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, last week, Grant brought a message, and there was a lot about that message that um, resonated with me, but there was this story that happened in the message. And there's the story of this woman who uh, anointed Jesus with this bottle of perfume. And when she did that, what happened right after that, what ensued was, was kind of a debate among the leaders and the disciples about uh, how much that was worth, worth a year's wages, and how they had a mission that they were told they were supposed to be on. They had things that they were told they were supposed to be about, and how much good that could have done, and how they wouldn't say this, right, because we never say it, but in their mind, they're like, you just wasted it on Jesus, which is, it's, you, you're uncomfortable even hearing that, but that's what they're thinking, right? And, and they're worried about that. But Jesus paused them and, they said, and he said, no, a beautiful thing just happened. That she had what she had and in front of her, she had an opportunity and she took that opportunity to anoint my body for my burial. Anoint my body for what is to come. And, and there was this, this preparation piece that he, he referenced and as I was uh, preparing for this uh, message, that just really stuck with me. Because we find ourselves in this time, we find ourselves uh, in these, this week before we hit Palm Sunday, and then we hit Holy Week, and then we celebrate uh, Easter, and there's these beautiful things that are in front of us. And we find ourselves in uh, this time, and, and this passage, this message is just so perfect for that. And I want to draw attention to that 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 doesn't happen by accident, that Grant Grant really thinks through as these things are lining up where our calendar is going to be and and placed it out and spaces it out, sometimes when it works, sometimes it doesn't always work great for us, Um, but when he can, he spaces it out so it might prepare us, it might give us a proper context for what we're stepping into, and that's what's happening today. So I want to encourage you guys as as we're processing through this passage to kind of have a lens and a thought of of preparation, what that means and what the value is in it. And with that, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that a little bit right now. I'm going to read through uh, the entirety of the passage that we're going through today. And I want to encourage you to do something. As I'm doing that, feel free to follow along or just to listen. And if there's a word or a phrase or a concept that sticks out to you, stop listening to me. You have scripture in front of you. You can go back. It'll be on the screen as I go back through it, and it'll always be there. But just stop and sit with what that is. And, and maybe, maybe that doesn't work for you. Maybe it would be better for you if you just didn't listen to me at all, and you just went to God and prayed and said, God, prepare my heart for what is being said. Because I think sometimes in our busyness, especially for me, I do this all the time in our busyness, that we forget to prepare as a father of three, and Lindsay and I work both, both work full-time, there's times where preparation for dinner means we're driving through this building that has dinner prepared for us, right? Like, we don't always prepare perfectly. But, but I want to give you guys an opportunity as I read, whatever that means for you, whatever you need to prepare and ask God, not because of what I'm saying, not because of my, my preparations or what's being spoken by me, but because God's working in your heart and the Spirit's working in your life. So I'm going to read... We're going to be in Mark chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to go all the way through verse 26. And it says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat Passover? 
So he sent two disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where, my guest ro- where is my guest room? Where I may eat Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large room upstairs that is furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left and they went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. One who, eat, who is eating with me. They were saddened and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It is one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread in the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he were not, if he were not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples saying, this, take it, this is my body. And then he took a cup and he had given thanks. He gave it to them and they drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it in new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. God, I ask as we hear your word, Lord, that you truly would meet us here. That you would prepare our hearts, that you would prepare our minds for for what is to come in the next couple of weeks, what is to come in the next couple of minutes and moments, Lord, that you would allow us to be open to what you have for us. So we thank you that your word doesn't come back void. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather collectively and hear from your word and praise your name. We give these things to you in your name. Amen. So as I said before, we're, we're kind of walking in lockstep with Jesus right now. That as we read this passage, we realize this is kind of the same spot that, that he's about to go in, right? He's about to be handed over and he's about to be crucified. And we're about to celebrate Easter and the resurrection. All that stuff is to come. But, but here we see, we see this moment, and, and at the end, you guys might have, might have been familiar to you. For those that you come, you know we take communion each week, and we're going to talk about that, and there's this communion meditation, but if you, if you have your Bible in front of you, or, or maybe on your phone, whatever it is, you see in this passage, this much is about the, the communion meditation, and this much is just this part about the preparation, which is kind of this wonky, weird story. And you're like, Mark, why'd you put so much of this in the story? And he kind of didn't give as much airtime to like, let's talk about the new covenant, the good stuff, right? But that's how it is and that's how it's set up. And, and as I go through this passage, there's gonna be some things, um, some background, some context that I give you. And I ask you to just stick with me because it, I'm doing my best to only give us what's gonna be necessary to understanding it. Uh, But there is this reality that we're about 2,000 years detached from the culture that is going on here. So there's some things that kind of help us understand what's happening. In verse 12, it says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? 
So we see at the beginning, there's these two type of events that are happening, right? There's Passover. And Passover kind of inaugurated this time that's called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And what Passover was for them is a time where you would recall, a time where you would remember uh, when the last plague went through Egypt, that this plague that was going to take the firstborn of every living thing, of human, of, of livestock, of whatever, it was going to go through. But God said to the people of Israel, if you sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the post, then, then my spirit will pass over your house and I will sustain my people and I will preserve the firstborn among you. And this is something that they recalled and, and they would remember. And after generation after generation, every year they would do this. And right after that, we have this Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's actually going all the way back to, to Exodus chapter 12, where they were leaving the Exodus, right? They were leaving out of Egypt, out of slavery. And in that time, they took off and it was so quick, it was so abrupt that they would make in the morning, they would make the dough for the day. And when it got closer, they would add a leavening agent to it and it would rest and it would rise and they would bake bread. But they had to leave so quickly, all they had was the dough. And finally, when they could stop and make their meal, they realized, oh, I guess we're gonna have like crackers and biscuits tonight because we have no leavening agent. And Moses spoke to them and he spoke to them addressing that very thing. In Exodus 13, verse three, it says that he, he said, Moses said, commemorate this day the day that you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out with his mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today you are in the month of Aviv and you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, the land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast. And on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. So we see this setup. This is what's happening in the life of Jesus. This, isn't, this passage isn't about communion. It's about them celebrating the Passover together. And, sell, and entering into the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And these were very important moments. And the reason they were important is because this was a time that the nation of Israel went through a lot of very difficult times. But every year, they would remember this event that happened. These events that happened. And it would tell them, it would remind them that Yahweh, their God, was with them. And so great effort went into these events. Sometimes years of prep, I mean, year of preparation would go to them coming to this city and making sure everything was good so they could celebrate that. And there was preparation and tradition that came to that. In verse 13, it said, he sent two disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jug of water will meet you. Follow him, say to the owner of the house he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat Passover with the disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations there for us. And so we see this, and again, with a little bit of background, you're like, hey, if everyone's going for Passover and everyone's in the city, wouldn't there be like thousands of people carrying water? 
Like, how's that like a sign, Jesus? You need to have a better one. And, and the reality was culturally in that day, if water was being collected, it was being collected by women. So for a man to be carrying, there was two main vessels. There was the big jug for water for the home, and then there were smaller vessels made out of skins of some kind, and those would carry wine and other things like that. But almost all the time, you would see women bringing the water in preparation for the evening's meal or whatever, So that's kind of what would trigger that. But there's also this debate that as you read people about this, they they talk about, okay, is this a miracle that's happening or is this preparation, right? We don't know. Like, is it, because if it's a miracle, it's pretty mild for Jesus. You know, he like raised people from the dead, fed thousands of people. It was a crazy storm. And he's like, no, you're good. Calm down. And and he could do things like this. So, So could it be a miracle? Yes, possibly. Or could it be preparation? Either way, Jesus is very specifically and intentionally preparing an opportunity for him to share this meal with these 12 men that followed him during his ministry. And we know that in this time, in this culture, that that they had to prepare a place within the city walls. And people who lived in the city would know this. They would adjust their household to create an open room for family members or for travelers to rent out so they could do that. Because when you sacrifice the the Passover lamb, It must be done at the temple and there was restrictions on movement and all of that. So all these things build to this tradition, to this intentionality that these people had in remembering what God had done. And Jesus does something very subtle, but very important here. The last thing he says is make preparations for us there. He's, the disciples in verse 12 said, hey, hey, where do we go so we can prepare Passover for you? And to kind of translate that in today, it's like, it's like if the Super Bowl were back then and Grant's hosting the Super Bowl party. And, you know, he's, he's like, all right, everyone come over, but it's kind of potluck. So people are bringing food. Some people are bringing drinks. Other people are bringing other TVs because it's Super Bowl. And everyone's doing that. The language that we would use as we're doing that and participating is that we're bringing these things for Grant because he was the host, So we're not making preparations for a party that we're attending. We're making preparations for the host who hosts the party. So in the disciples' mind, that's what they're doing. And Jesus is is making it clear subtly, and he'll do it more later, that, hey, this actually isn't about me. The reason that all this is happening isn't about me, but it's about my mission. And so it goes on in verse 16, it says, the disciples left and they went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared Passover. This part was in, I break down into chunks as I go through uh, the passage. And this was in a chunk with other things. And the more that I read it, the more I realized this isn't just like an extra piece, but it was in there intentionally. And it's this beautiful picture. It's this amazing picture of the beauty of trusting Jesus and seeing it like work out. It's a kind of a small picture, but still, they were, we don't have any like debate. They weren't like, Jesus, but, what, but all these things. It seems like they just walked in the city and they were like, oh, everything's like he said. Like almost shocked by it, right? Like there's this, this, this trust of Jesus and they get to see the benefit of trusting Jesus and it to come to fruition. And the reason that I say this, and this stuck out to me, is that trust sometimes we just think is very linear. It's just, I mean, it's very, you're in or you're out. And when I do premaritals with people before they get married, and Lindsay and I are talking to them, we talk about trust. And I use this example, I think I've used it here before too, that, that there was a time in, in my trust spectrum where, where I 
I hoped Lindsay liked me, right? Her friend said that she liked me. Instead, if I asked out, she would say yes, right? So I hoped that she liked me. And I took that risk and I asked her out and she said yes. And then so we started dating. And then in that time of us dating, there was a time where I believed she liked me. I had evidence. I had, I had experience to back that up, right? I had some knowledge saying that I believed that she liked me. But here's the problem. If any of you know me at all, you would know I'm not the easiest guy to like all the time. So there would be some tension in our relationship because of my, let me put it this way. If I was a high schooler at this church, you guys would know who I was and not in a good way. That was the type of, you would, you would be okay with it because I just found Jesus because I found Jesus in high school. So you're like, we got to minister to that boy, right? Like that was that high schooler. And so I was tough to like, but in our relationship, there'd be times where I would feel uneasy and I would be like, is this the last time? Is this the straw that breaks the camel's back? Like I believed that she liked me, but I didn't know how far that went. And now 18 years of being together, I live and I function in a reality where my wife loves me. I don't question it. Let me tell you, there are times where she doesn't like me, that's for sure. Just ask her and she'll let you know. But I never question whether she loves me. Now, if you asked me at the very beginning of our dating relationship if I trusted that she liked me, or when she said she loved me that I trusted, I would say yes, absolutely. But that change and that morphed and that, you know, it goes back and forth. It's the spectrum and it's not always one direction, right? You're with someone and trust is broken and it backs up. And I say this intentionally because some of you in this room might hope that the things that I'm about to say about Jesus are real. You might hope that to be true. Some of you have been raised in the church and you, you know verses and you're well equipped in, in apologetics and all those types of things and you believe that these things are true. And you would affirm them to other people, but when it comes time, like we're gonna take communion later for you to come to Jesus, it's hard to afford yourself the same grace you speak to be true. And for some of you, you're just resting in the completed work of Christ. Like you're just like, you know what, God, you got me. I've been through this enough to know there's nothing I'm gonna do to make it better. And you're sitting there, but I wanna encourage you with this, that no matter where you are in trusting Jesus, the disciples did the same, right? They walked in the city, but there was plenty of times where they thought they were gonna die. They trusted Jesus could save them, but they weren't gonna trust he was gonna wake up. Like, there's this tension that they had. So I wanna encourage you, if you're somewhere on that trust spectrum, that Jesus sees you. He doesn't need you to be better before he meets you. The point of this isn't to tell you, you need to be over here by this time in your life. What are you still doing here? But it's to say that Jesus is with you in this whole process. Verse 17 is just an example of that. It says, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And, And they were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely you do not mean me. And this happened at the beginning of the meal, this celebration. And again, this celebration was like, Like Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter all put together. Like that's how big it was. It was joyous. There was kids running around laughing. Like Passover and Feast of the Unleavened Bread, like everyone came together. It was a beautiful, joyful thing. And and, and they they hit this moment. But before we get there, I want to emphasize this because again, we're separated from culture. Like to eat with someone, to recline at a table with someone meant so much more than it does now. 
Because I can sit at Starbucks with 35 other people I don't know, eating lunch and working on my sermon, right? And not even have a connection with them. But in that day when you ate with someone, you were proclaiming an equality you had with them. More than that, you were outright stating your willingness to associate with them. And for some of you, Easter's coming up, and maybe you have an Easter dinner or brunch, and you're like, crazy uncle so-and-so's coming. I don't really want to associate with him. I hope he, I kind of hope he doesn't come to church with me, because like, that would be awkward. Like, right? So you're like, don't want that association. But it was deeply intimate to share a meal with people in this time. When it says recline at the table, literally they'd be laying with one arm on the ground like this, eating with the other hand, laying next to each other, having conversation for hours. And in that time, we see that Jesus says at the very beginning, truly, I tell you, someone who is eating with me is gonna betray me. That was not followed by him kicking him out of the room. That wasn't followed by him pointing him out and and discrediting him at that point. That was followed by them sharing a beautiful, maybe the most beautiful meal in all of creation together. And that should speak to you that God doesn't need you to fix everything to commune with you. God doesn't need you to have it right. And if he did, none of the disciples would have made it to this point to commune with you and be in relationship with you. Verse 20 says, it is one of the 12, this is Jesus. He said, it is one of the 12, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. So Jesus is saying something here. He, he's clarifying that this isn't just one person and Grant brought it up as we were in teaching team that he says one of the 12 means there's probably others around in this meal with them. And the 12 would have been very clear, these closest people to him. And he's saying that it's one of the 12 and, and he does something here that's really important. And Mark uh, says that Jesus refers to himself like this over and over and it's with the moniker of son of man. Now, if I were to ask you, who is Jesus? Most of you would say, in some ways, you're explaining it, a lot of different things, but the word son of God would come up at some point, right? And you would not be wrong. That's absolutely 100% right. Son of God is who Jesus is. But do you see back then, son of God was not a religious thing. It was a state thing. It was a moniker that was used by, by the Roman leadership that Caesar would refer to himself as son of God. And what that meant is it spoke something about who he was and the authority that he had and the focus was on him, that he was deity. And Jesus knowing that, intentionally saying, I'm the son of man. So instead of him having a moniker that clarifies who he is, even though he is the son of God, he said, no, I want my moniker to clarify what I'm about. And what he's about, this literally translates, it says son of man, but what it means is, is human, uh, a part of the human race, person, that he's with us, that he's one of, of the people that he is with, that he wanted to make clear to the disciples when they said, let me prepare this for you. He said, it's us, because what he's saying is that it's actually not about me, but it's about what I'm doing. Because my goal here isn't to focus and draw the attention to me being God. And we see in Mark, he, does, he goes to great lengths to make sure that isn't the case. But my goal here 
is to redeem the broken relationship between me and my people. And you are how I'm going to do that. And you are the people that I want to share this meal with. Because this meal will be a meal that they have. And I think a lot of the reason that most of them pursue telling people about Jesus, even to their own death. And he's saying, I'm setting up something new here. The next couple of verses I'm going to read are the verses that we always read for communion, but I want you to, I want to tell you this so you don't grab your cup and just have it awkwardly open for a while. We aren't doing that yet. We'll get to communion. But right now we're talking about the Passover that he's having with his disciples. Verse 22 says, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, take it. This is my body. And then he took the cup, and when, it had, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. In a Passover meal, there was, there was four movements in which the cup would be filled and they would be drinking wine together and those were tied to different things that you would talk about. And, and there was um, three movements of, of the bread being broken and to try it to specifically tie this to one of those would probably be overdoing it because we don't have clarity as to which one it was. Um, and there's actually five cups that would be poured. One was the Elijah cup. But, but as they go through this, he's... he's he, as the leader, as the rabbi, had a responsibility in Passover. And his responsibility was to recall an account of the Passover. To, to recall a time that God, what God had done and tell the story in detail and remind the people in that room who God is and what God had done, and he was tasked with that. That was his responsibility, but instead of telling a story of what God did, he pivoted, and this is so important and so profound, that instead of telling a story of what God did, he told a story of what God was doing. That he co-opted this meal that was to remember what God was doing, what God did, and say, hey, I'm personifying this. This memory of the story that gives you aspects of God's character, his grace, his mercy, his loving kindness, the fact that he's with you always, all those things you remember about God, that is happening now in front of you. He broke the bread and he gave it to them and said, this is my body. And I love it, we were in staff and Linda actually corrected me, I think, I don't know where she, yep, right there. And she's like, we're going through it. And she's like, I always heard this is my body broken for you. And then it's like, but that's not in there. And I was like, you're right, it's not in there. And I looked at it and I was like, good job. And so he said, this is my body given to you. This is my humanity. This is my presence on this earth. This is my sacrifice of my deity to become, as we just had a series, fully human and to be present with you. Take it. And then he moved on and he said, that this is, uh, this is my blood. This is the sacrifice I'm making for a new covenant, for a new reality that you are experiencing right now. No longer are you going to each year remember what I did, but you are gonna each year proclaim what I am doing. This is something different that is happening in this room with these people 
And it's a beautiful thing. And what we get is the opportunity right now. And I want this so much for you guys. I want this so much for me that as we enter into Palm Sunday next week and, and Holy Week and Easter and all that, that we have an opportunity to prepare our hearts, that we're in the same situation and that there's value in preparation. Think about it. These, these holidays that we have, there's, some, there's probably some of you, if you cook a certain type of cookie and bake it, that it reminds you of grandma, right? Because you always did that with her. Or, or maybe you're prepping the turkey and you're getting it ready and you're doing all that type of stuff. And we all know if we broke it down and cooked it properly, it'd be better. But we still do the whole thing anyway, even if we mess it up. Like, and you do that and it reminds you of times with your dad or whatever it is, these, these traditions. I remember when I was a kid waking up and the first thing I smelled was mirepoix. Uh, sauteing on the stove, so carrots and onions and celery because my grandma needed to make the stuffing to put in the turkey before we cooked it. Now, luckily, my grandma always overcooked the turkey. Otherwise, we would have died eating the stuffing. We all know that's a terrible idea. You don't eat the stuffing in the turkey. So, like, um, she did that, but it, it invoked these memories for me. And to this day, Lindsay will go get mirepoix on Thanksgiving. We meet with friends for Thanksgiving and just cook it. We don't use it, we don't eat it, just because she knows I like the smell and she loves me. So she'll like cook that for me. But here's the thing, the memory of that, the, the tradition of that for me, isn't to remember an event, but it's to remember a reality. Because there was these times growing up, Thanksgiving was the time that I felt most normal as a family. Being raised by my grandparents, it was different, it was good, all that, but, but it, we were like the family on TV. We gathered around the table. My aunts and uncles were there. We shared a meal. It just felt like it was the right thing, and I cherished that, and I remembered a reality. And so as we enter into this time with communion, I'm going to read back through this passage in a second. And, and my hope for us as we're thinking through this, is that we would realize that what we're proclaiming with this is not a recollection of an event. We aren't just talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but we're talking about the new reality that exists in light of what happened. Now, now, what we're proclaiming, and this is what we do a lot of the times, and for those of you that have been in church for a while, you're used to this. And those of you who go to this church, we do this every week. And one of the risks you run into when you do things consistently, same with tradition, is we kind of start becoming apathetic towards it. We kind of just go through the motions. And a lot of you might even do this, and you've read verses, and you've been told that you need to make sure you're right with God before you take this. And so you're thinking about yourself. You're thinking, maybe you're the person who believes in Jesus, and you have all these things, but that also makes you believe that you've really screwed up a lot and you feel bad about that as you're taking this. So first, may I encourage you with this, that God sees you and he knows you and he loves you. So as we enter into this time, receive that. That's a very perpendicular you and God thing. But also, because of what he did, he created in you a new identity that you are a child of God and that you are made in his image. It's kind of like this picture. 
So you're made in this image. That's a great image, right? So Chris isn't here, so I get to be um, the psychiatrist today. Uh, I want you to pick one of those dots up there, and what dot like, do you relate to? I'm kind of that smudgy blue one right there in the middle, kind of smudgy pudgy. Um, so uh, relate to the dot, right? And, and you take that dot, and, and I look at that, and here's the thing. When I'm that dot, I look around, and I'm like, there's so many other ones that are like more symmetrical. They're a better color, right? Your immediate context, and again, this is an allergy. It's going to break down somewhere. But it's your, it's your context, and we do the same with our identity in God. That maybe some of you are like, I don't know the aspect of my life that reflects God, and that's okay. But some of you know it and you feel bad about it because it doesn't look like other people's dots. Because you look over and you're like, I wish I had the servant's heart of this person. I wish that I had the prayer uh, capacity of this person. I wish I was eloquent as this person. I wish I would be willing to stand on stage like this person is. And, And you start looking around comparing, but it isn't a comparing where you're being affirmed by other people's gifts, but you're discrediting what God is doing in you. And that's because we spend a lot of time in the culture that we're in horizontally. See, when we think about our relationship with God and that's it, it gets really hard for us to trust that trust that goes into knowing, right? It gets really hard for us to trust that God can still love us. Some of you have lived a while on this earth and you've went to God with the same thing and you would be like, I wouldn't forgive me at this point. But what we need to do is we need to have this moment, but also realize there's a horizontal moment and take a step back and scope out. And if we could have the next picture, realize that you are an important piece, a beautiful piece in what God is doing. But what I see is not this dot and not compared to the other dots in its immediate vicinity, but what I see is this beautiful picture that God is painting for a world that needs to see him. And that is the church. That is you guys. That is the people in this room, individually beautiful and created by God, but collectively the very representation of the God of the universe. See, because for the people of Israel, when they celebrated Passover, it was almost never about an individual thing. It was always about the collective. It was about a chosen people of God. Paul translates that into nowadays where he says that you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Paul would refer to each of you as saints, and you're like, nope, not me, man, you, if you knew. But you have gifts of God that when put together in this community, start to paint a picture. And so as we enter into this time, if I could encourage you to take preparation this next week. To prepare your heart, I don't know what this looks like and I'm not gonna give you direction because it's different for each person. Maybe it's a passage you read each day, maybe it's something else that you do, maybe it's just pausing for a moment being thankful for things in your life, whatever it is to prepare your heart. Because this is what I believe, preparation speaks value. We see this all the time. It's maybe one of the reasons that there's maybe too much preparation to a wedding and not enough preparation to a marriage, right? Like, you know, maybe we should do more pre-marriage, right? So there's different things that when you prepare for things, it generally speaks value to that. So we have an opportunity as Easter is coming to do that. But you guys have another opportunity each week, for those of you that call this your home, is before you come to this campus, prepare your heart. 
Because God put these people in your life and also he put you in their life. That there's a piece to that puzzle, there's a piece to that picture that someone else in this room needs to see because they have a hard time seeing it in their life. So as we go into this time of communion, what we're proclaiming is not just an event, not just the fix to the sin in your life and the promise of heaven later. It is those things, but it's not just that. What we're proclaiming when we take this is a unity in Christ. There's different cultures, there's different backgrounds, there's different people on that trust spectrum in this room right now, but we are united by the blood of Jesus in a community which he has blessed us with and which he wants us to be a blessing in. So let's read as we take this. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Let's take the bread. And then he took the cup and when he had given thanks to, to them, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Let's take the cup. The last verse here, verse 26 said, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We're gonna have an opportunity right now to sing. May I ask something from you? May I enter into this time however you want, but, but would you, before you start singing these words, receive the words. Let them sit in your heart and before you speak them out, most of you have it memorized and we, you could do the whole thing without looking up there or you just read it off the screen but receive them first. And then after they sat in your heart, wherever you are, proclaim them true from your heart as a response to what God's doing. And if you're not there and it's hard for you to say these things are true, you need to know that's okay. And that's why we're in this community together. I love that there's people in this room who are so much further along than I am and there's people in this room that God's placed me in their life so I can help them walk through things. And it's a beautiful family that he's created here. So as we enter into this time, as we sing this together, do it in preparation for what is to come. As we get, come to the end of this time together in that song, there's so much of that song that I can sing and I can just be like, oh, that's just so true. But there's also times in my life where there's so much of that song I want to be true. And it's hard to rest in it. It's hard to believe that the God of the universe would do the things that is being said that he would do in that song. Easter is a beautiful time. It's fun. I love all the tradition. Traditions are good. They, they invoke memories. They, they create time. Um, the N.T. Wright, as I was doing studying, said that you should mark important events with important meals. And I was like, I can get behind that one. Um, and that's what we heard today was an important meal. And my hope for you guys is that in your pursuit of Jesus, that you carve out some time and prepare, not because it's the better thing to do, 
but that you might just receive more from these moments that we gather. Our God is the same God that preserved the Israelites. He's a God of love and grace and mercy, and he sees you, and he knows you, and he loves you. So as I pray right now, that's my prayer for us this morning, that we might experience that, that we might know that more and more every day. Lord, these are your people. As I look into this crowd, I see love, I see grace, I see mercy, I see intentionality, I see patience, I see kindness, I see hope. I see these things that are characteristics of who you are, Lord. And and, and as I look at this church, I see your bride, the representation of you on this earth. And so, Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that we might be reminded that the reason that you came wasn't to prove your deity, to prove your authority, but you came that you might meet us where we are. In the same way that you brought the Israelites out of Egypt, that you free us from the things that try to corrupt and erode what you have created to be beautiful. Lord, I pray that you do a great work in this community. Not so that we can feel good about ourselves or so we can, we can pat each other on the back, but so that we can unite under your banner as your children, as representations of you. So I pray over each person, wherever they find themselves, that they might know that they are seen and known and loved by you and that they might find tangible representations of that in this community which you have placed them in. Lord, let this be true for us. We give these things to you in your name.